Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 514, with Paul Tunerman of Dat Dog. But a great young kid who showed tremendous potential, and he was given opportunity. When you do that to individuals, it's unlimited. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. If you want new customers, more revenue, and a huge advantage over your competition, then listen up. My good friend and industry expert, Nick Fosberg, is doing something special for Restaurant Unstoppable listeners. He says most owners are wasting money on Facebook because our industry does not provide enough knowledge, and I got to say, I agree. So Nick is going to take some of our listeners and guarantee them a minimum of $500 in sales for every $100 they spend on ads. If not, they don't pay. Yes, that means he's guaranteeing a 500% ROI and new customers in your door. That's pretty rad. If you want more info, go to ru500.net. That's ru for restaurant unstoppable 500.net. Wouldn't it be great if you could play music directly from your Spotify account in your own restaurant without worrying about being pinched by the music police? Well, guess what? With Soundtrack, your brand, you can. Unlike Spotify Premium, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack, your brand is licensed for business use. And with SoundtrackYourBrand.com, you can import your favorite music from Spotify and share them directly with your guests. This deal typically goes for $26.99, but if you act now, you can get this deal for $19.99 per month per location for life. Get on it. Again, that's soundtrackyourbrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. All right. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Paul Tunerman. Paul, my man, are you feeling unstoppable? I am. Today? I'm absolutely feeling unstoppable. Actually, we're feeling unstoppable. Yeah, we I'm are. Uh, uh, excited to be here and have an opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, man, this is going to be a good one. I'm really excited about your story. So uh, Paul began his restaurant career at the age of 15 when he took a job at Arthur Teachers Fish and Chips just out off the uh, campus of Virginia Polytech Institute and State University. After serving six years in the U.S. Navy, thank you for your service, by the way, uh, it didn't take long for Paul to get back into the hospitality. Uh, Paul has held positions at Morrison's Hospitality Group, Wood Dining Services, Inc., the Dunhill Group, and Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers. Today, Paul serves as CEO of Dat Dog, which consists of four locations throughout New Orleans or New Orleans. I've been trying to get better about that. I'm from New Hampshire. Forgive me. Uh, And I can't wait to get your story and find out how you got to where you are today and what you've learned over the years. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Well, you know, it's it's interesting and I appreciate the opportunity. I, I always talk about there's three rules in life. Okay, so three rules in life, according to Paul, one is momentum, is I always want to be moving. You never really know in life whether you're headed off in the right direction or not. But if you're stagnant and you're standing still, you'll never find out. Mm. So that's kind of my first thing is just keep moving. 
you know, and dart off in one direction. If you find that's the wrong direction, then dart off in the other direction just as fast, but never lose that momentum. Mm. Um, you know, life uh, to me is a very precious present and, uh, one shouldn't spend any time wasting it by sitting around on a couch trying to figure out what the hell to do with themselves. I dig it. Uh, the other piece is compassion. You know, we, uh, you know, in, t- in today's world, we have opportunities to, to come across, you know, all sorts of individuals. And, uh, you know, I always say I always want to care for my fellow man regardless of our relationship. Whether you're a stranger on the street, uh, uh, a kid that works in one of my restaurants, or what have you. So it's, you know, let's be more compassionate. And the other one is impact. I always want to leave an indelible mark on those people that I, that I meet. Um uh, so that's my three rules of right of life. Moving compassion, always be moving compassion and impact. And you really struck a chord with me with that last one because I'm always saying this industry is about impact and not reach. And you always look at people trying to grow and expand, right? But, right. But it's that growth and expansion comes when you think about going the other direction and making an impact. And the, the growth is the natural uh, progression because of that. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Love no, it. absolutely. Awesome stuff. So let's go back to where it all started for you. So you started working in the restaurant industry in high school, yeah? Yeah. So, you know, I was uh, probably like most people. uh, At the age of 15, I I took a job in a restaurant. You know, I always tell folks, I said, I lied on a job application. You know, at 15, you had to have uh, a work permit. You know, I didn't have anybody that would give me a work permit, sign, sign off a work permit. And so, you know, I was like, all right, I'll just lie on the job application. I started frying tr- uh, fish at Arthur Treacher's, and uh, I had a blast. That's and it was, teachers during the, the – Yeah, yeah I'm that's all right. I don't even think they're in business anymore, <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure they'll, they'll, they'll forgive you. So at Arthur Treacher's right off the, the uh, campus of, of Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. And that was kind of where I first got the, uh, the bug, so to speak, in that, you know – the restaurant industry is is unique in that um, it's kind of like going to war together. Mm. You know, if you've ever you know if you've ever worked a line on a busy day, you know, slip sliding around on a quarry yeah. tile floor. It, I mean, it's physically, emotionally, and mentally taxing. And you know, at the end of the night, there's nothing like that satisfaction. You know, you know whether or not you've hit a home run. Yeah. You know, the minute you put that plate up in the window or, or whatever it is, you know, when you finish hosing out the dish room, you know, you can kind of sit back, look at it and say, yeah, that's pretty fine. Um, and so, and, and there's a, there's a unique sort of brotherhood in that industry, in the industry. And so for me, it was, it was the first time in my life that I really felt like I was part of a family. Mm. Um, so I went from Arthur Treacher's, um, had an opportunity, looked at it as a promotion, went to go work in the uh, dish room at a place called the Sheraton Red Lion Inn, again in Blacksburg. Uh, must have did a good job in the dish room because I ended up in the pot room and then eventually worked the line. Uh, and that was sort of my first taste. But, you know, again, when you're out there and you're pounding out meals, uh, it, you get into a rhythm and a vibe with the other people that are working with you in the kitchen, and it's just a ton of fun. Uh, and you build these relationships that, honestly, I mean, at 57, I still have Yeah, with individuals. So, I mean, not to get into too much detail, but you kind of had it rough growing up, getting through like your early teen years, and you were at one point living on the streets yeah. uh, in Pittsburgh. So, so like, to, have this, to have this opportunity to, to belong someplace to have people who cared about you brothers and sisters like you said that that brotherhood the sisterhood uh like 
really dive into how that transformed you in that moment. Yeah, you know, I always well, I always tell my wife when she tells me she's cold. I said, you don't know what cold is like until you spent uh, uh, a, a couple of winter nights in the restroom of an Exxon gas station in Pittsburgh. Oh, but you know, my uh, listen, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a June and uh, Ward Cleaver life for me. Um, but it was, it made me who I am today. And I'm totally good with who I am today as an individual. You know, my father uh, was young. He passed away uh, from cancer. My mother, the year afterwards, committed suicide in the living room. How old were you? Uh, I was the, so my father passed away. I was in seventh grade and I was in eighth grade when my mother killed herself. Yeah, but you know, it's, things work out Mm -hmm. for all the right reasons. And, um, you know, I essentially had nobody, you know, I mean, I was raised by a guardian who was not the nicest person in the world. Um, and so I did spend a lot of time on the streets. Yeah. Um, you know, I attended, you know, I barely made out at high school. One year I was, uh, I attended one more day than I missed. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, jokingly I always say I was probably voted most likely to be a felon in high school. Uh, but you know what it is it taught me about adversity and uh, throughout my life one of the things that I've really learned is we can write our own chapter we can be whoever we want to mm-hmm. be you just got to want to be it when did you figure this out though was did you figure this out back then or I mean that's a really bold thought to have as a young person it's, to, to... you know it kind of came to me over time you know you sort of look at it but you know, I look at it today and listen, I've had a, a, a phenomenal life at 57 and, and I, you know, I look back at it and, uh, you know, you can, you know, I mean, I have distinct chapters in my life, you know, and, and you can, uh, you know, if you want to do it bad enough, you can do it. Mm. And that's the beauty about this industry. Yeah. You know, I mean, listen, I don't have a college degree. <laughs> All right. Barely made it out of high school. Um, you know, and I've just had these, these, these opportunities in life and, uh, where people have had an impact, um, and I've picked up bits of knowledge, um, and capitalized on opportunities that were presented to me to sort of leverage that, to continue to move forward. Um, and I just believe that, you know, especially in this industry, listen, if I can do it, you can do it. Anybody can do it. Man, I'm excited to move forward because I really want to dive into these opportunities that were presented to you and how you leveraged them and kind of what, what form these came to you in. Uh, so let's kind of move it forward to, uh, you go into the Navy. I'm sure that was probably a really great choice for somebody who was in your situation to get that kind of structure to get, am I making assumptions? No, no, no. It was, uh, yeah, no, they, uh, you know, nothing like the United States military to straighten somebody out Uh, (laughs) or at least they tried. Uh, no. So, you know, I look at it and, and there's, uh, there was one gentleman in high school. He was, uh, my shop teacher's name was Mr. Surface. And, uh, he's like the only person I haven't had an opportunity to go back to in life and say, Hey, you know, you made an impact. Thank you. Mm. He's no longer with us. Uh, and I've kind of toyed about like trying to track down his family to tell him what an impact he had. Um, but you know, he was, uh, listen, I was a handful, you know, probably smoked too much weed, goofed off too much, you know, what have you. And, uh, you know, ran with a rough crowd and we were in shop class and we would do stupid stuff, uh, you know, from electrocuting each other to, you know, trying to arc weld a 12 gauge shotgun shell. Uh, <laughs> that didn't go well. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, I was always like trying to push the limits. But you know what Mr. Surface taught me how to do? He taught me about authenticity and being genuine and how to shake a hand. Mm. And if anything, I'm authentic. If anything, I'm genuine. You may not like my authenticity. You may not like my candor. But trust me, it's exactly how I feel. Uh, you know, so I don't really. So I don't how really, did he teach you this? Was it who he was? Was it somebody you were trying to? Were you trying to replicate the, the values were, he had? These were he... discussions that we would have, mm. and for whatever reason, he would, you know, he would genuinely. I mean, he would just sit me down and be like, "Hey, you know, this is going to be important in life." And he, so he's he set me off uh, with this valuable bit of wisdom. That at that time I didn't really appreciate, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, back in those days, um, the senior class, the seniors were basically got out of school a week before graduation. So I didn't even stick around for graduation. I was like, boom, off to the off to the uh, uh, off to boot camp for the United mm-hmm. States Navy. Uh, finish up boot camp, and I decided, you know, I'm gonna I want to be a cook, you know. So go to San Diego, and I go to San Diego for their uh, their cooking school. And it's full. So they don't have any room. So they ask for a volunteer. So here I am, a young kid from you know southwestern Virginia. I'm in Southern California in uh, 1980, and they're looking for a volunteer to hang out for a while. So I raised my hand. Sure, pick me. So I ended up working for the commanding officer of the A school, the cooking school. Um, and the gentleman named uh, Master Chief Ward. So I worked in the office. I did a lot of filing, did a lot of paperwork, that kind of stuff. Finally, an opening came up, went through this, the program. And uh, when I graduated from cooking school, Master Chief Ward and I both got transferred at the same time to the USS Constellation. And he was in charge of the food service. So here I had this tremendous relationship with him. He'd gotten to know me as an individual. Uh, and he said, listen, you know what? He said, why don't you go work and uh, work for the Admiral? So there's, you know, not to bore you, but there's a structure. And, you know, when a carrier goes out to sea, you have a carrier group, which is uh, the responsibility of an Admiral. And then you have an air wing, which is the responsibility of an individual. And then you have the individual ships that all have captains. So I'm on the USS Constellation. Technically, I work for uh, uh, Dennis Brooks, who's the captain, but I also work for you know, Bud Edney, who at that time was the Admiral. So I lived in this sort of surreal world in that, you know, you really just did whatever the Admiral asked. So if the Admiral wanted a pint of Briar's ice cream, you figured out how to get a <laughs> pint of Briar's ice cream, ice cream for him. Okay. Uh, so it was kind of a neat situation. Uh, did that for uh, four and a half years. And, uh, you know, when you're in the service, a lot of times they'll, they'll keep you in these same units. And so people rotate out. They go back to the U.S., do shore duty, and then they come back out to sea. So after a while, it was just like people kept coming. They were, they'd be on the ship. They'd go, go to shore duty. They'd come back, and they're like, dude, why are you still here? And I'm like, that's a really good <laughs> idea. I'm like, point, you know, so let's figure this out. Pick up the phone, call Washington, and they're like, well, why are you still there? Like you should have you should have left like six months ago, and I had just done four back to back deployments in uh, the Indian Ocean. I mean, it was kind of tired of being out at sea. Yeah, and uh, they uh, they're like, well, you know, you don't have enough time on your enlistment. 
you know, you're going to have to just do another deployment. I'm like, fuck no. I'm like, extend it. Like, get me back to the U.S. So I actually did six months, six days, and six years in the United States Navy because I had to extend my enlistment by six months and six days in an effort to get out of North Africa and back to the U.S. Okay. All right? So I'm kind of a, you know, a, uh, a loose cannon in the in the uh, in high school. I end up in the military. I don't really. I always say I never really served in the real navy. You know, when you work for an admiral, things are sort of surreal. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, and now I find myself at NTCRTC, which is the Naval Training Center, Recruit Training Center in San Diego, and I'm a little pissed off because I've been left behind and had to extend my life by six six months and six days. To get the fuck out of the Indian Ocean. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm on base and uh, I'm walking and this commander comes up and he's like, hey, sailor, like, what's up with your hair? And I'm like, what the fuck's it to you? And this, unbeknownst to me, was my commanding officer, <laughs> John Neeb. And uh, so, John, I have this letter he wrote me uh, uh, probably about five or six years ago about the eight great moments in his life and how three of them included me. So John's like... He says, well, you know what? My hair's getting a little long. Let's go get a haircut. So he takes me to go get a haircut. So I get a haircut. I don't know. We still debate how long it was, but probably about 30 or 60 days later, I'm in a meeting with Roberta Hazard, who was the first ever female rear admiral in the Navy. And this woman was just impeccable. I mean, super smart, tight as a tick. We're in this meeting, and... This, the question of supply comes up. And so, you know, I raise my hand and say, hey, you know, I don't get it. I can see the Naval Supply Center here. It says, but, you know, this morning the crew was trying to make chili mac, and out of 11 ingredients we had two, macaroni and, macaroni and ground beef. And when I was in the Indian Ocean, damn it, I could get a, you know, I could get a pint of Briar's ice cream if I needed it. And she's like, sailor, who, who's responsible for you? <laughs> I'm like, that guy in the front row, John Neeb. <laughs> that didn't go over really well. So next thing I know, somebody comes and says, hey, the commander would like to see you in his office right now. I'm like, okay. So I go to see John Neeb, and this is a second great moment of, of our relationship. And he says, uh, he's like, you know, I'm going to write you up for jumping chain of command. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I didn't jump the chain of command. I said, I asked my master chief. And uh, he said, well, what did master chief said? Master chief said, None of my business. I'm like, okay. I said, so I asked the lieutenant. The lieutenant was like, none of your business. I said, so I figured I'd ask the admiral. I mean, listen, I didn't maybe deliver it in the right way, but I'm not wrong. And so John's like, well, if you think you're going to do a better job, you do it. And lo and behold, he and I put together an inventory management program. We went and uh, got some sort of temporary dispensation from the Pentagon. And uh, this was back in the day of, uh, you know, the $5,000 hammer and the, and the expensive toilet seats. And, you know, Ronald Reagan and his administration was looking to cut spending in the military. And we managed to uh, save the government a few million dollars. Um, and I walked out of it with uh, you know, a presidential accommodation and a Marine Corps Navy Achievement Medal and uh, a lot of lessons. 
man. So there's so many there's so many things I want to touch on right now from this story. First, going way back, and I didn't want to interrupt you because you were just on a roll, and I was loving every second of it. Uh, your your first mentor that you mentioned, the, the shop teacher. Yeah. Right? Be that person that's willing to sit somebody down because you don't know the impact, especially at that young age. If you can share values with somebody, share those values. You don't know how that will impact this person. But if you just, you know, shrug it off, then you're missing that opportunity to make a big difference in someone's yeah. life. Listen, it's about being real. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it, uh, I go back to at one point in my life, I had some, some confidence issues and was afforded an opportunity and took advantage of it. But it was one of those things where like, geez, man, I hope I can do this. And, but the guy I worked for was like, you can do this. And so what I did every morning, I'd wake up and I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, God, you know, if Bob Achenbach says I can do this job, I must be able to do this job. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started every day until eventually I just did the damn job. Yeah. You know? And that's the, the I'm happy that you, you are bringing this to the surface because I was going to ask you, what do you think it is about you that, uh, that gave you all these opportunities? It just sounds like opportunities were presented to you. Like, because, but you, I mean, obviously you were, there was something about you. There is a way that you led your life to kind of find these opportunities. What were they? I, and you're like, I have an idea, but I want you to say it. Yeah. You know, I, I honestly, I just, I feel like it's just my authenticity and my genuine nature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes it gets a little misread and maybe doesn't come out in the most, uh, uh, suave manner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did grow up in a kitchen, so to speak. So, uh, you know, you have to give me some, some, uh, give me a break, but you know, I really just think that it's, uh, you know, just the fact that I'm a genuine individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you learn to listen, you know, certainly a part of my life is, uh, you know, I don't like to use the term uh, streetwise, but, uh, you know, more as, you know, I'm a survivor. You know, I learned how to survive. I learned how to make it work. Uh, I learned how to bring things together. Um, I learned that you can do and be anything you want. You got to want it bad enough. Mm-hmm. And you got to work hard at, you know, work hard enough at it. Um, And listen, sometimes it sucks, you know, but you know, it's like suck it up and play hurt, you know? (laughs) But the other thing that I'm picking up from your story too, is that you take the initiative. You don't wait for something to, no, for somebody to come to you. Like you, you, you say what you see, you you, you, you just kind of, you know, take it head on Yeah, uh, and create opportunities for yourself when you do that. Is that safe to say? Well, yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, you, you know, you look at this, I mean, I grew up, I had basically no parents. I was raised by wolves. Uh, and, you know, so I didn't, you know, the the one thing that I didn't have in my life is I couldn't pick up the phone and call anybody, you know. I, could, I didn't have an, a plan B. You know, there was no option. There wasn't anybody on the other phone. You always had to figure it out. And um, that's a that's a tough situation for people, for for people that are in that situation uh, where they don't have anybody else. Uh, and, uh, you know, I do a lot of uh, community work and uh, with disadvantaged youth. And I talk a lot about the fact that, you know, I really wish at that point when you're in those depths of despair that somebody had reached out and said, it's going to be okay, mm. you know, because uh, it did all work out, you know, and it's, but it's a tough spot, but you learn to, persevere you learn to work through it um you learn to find a way to move forward yeah um and you know listen if there's anything you know failure and stop is not in my cat in in my uh uh you know just it's just 
it's not how I'm wired, mm-hmm. you know. I we we you. just we'll figure it out one way or another. Yeah, man, I hear you. And we we're almost 25 minutes into this conversation and it's been extremely motivational and very positive. <laughs> I've been loving the talk. But we haven't really even dive, dove into like the hospitality no. side of your career, but how you've gotten <laughs> to where you are. So, um Get Ariel for me real quick. Uh, kind of highlight the key points in your career. Like just hit them like in one sentence each. You bet. So we know where to spend most of our time so we can make the most of our business advice. While we're so going. I'm, uh, so uh, you know, to make this uh, a smooth transition. So I'm in the Navy. My enlistment comes up and John Neeb takes me for a walk. And he's like, do me a favor. He says, just get out of the Navy. And it was like, well, you know. You just recommended me for OCS. And he's like, just get out. He's like, you'll never survive here. People won't appreciate you. And what John Neeb had managed to do for the first time, you know, anybody in my life, I jokingly say, is he managed to harness the power of Paul for good, not evil. And so he had sort of figured out how I work. Real quick, uh, when he said he, he, people won't appreciate you, what was it about you that he was talking about? My style. <laughs> Your style of being candor and frank and transparent. Yeah. And just, you know, I mean, listen, it's the military. You know, you ask permission, you, you know, you, you wait for someone to tell you what to do. Uh, you do it a specific way. And I've always looked at it, you know, to me, it's like, listen, it's about winning. You know, it's about being successful um, and having a, a, a definition of success that is, far greater than any one individual. Um, and we'll talk about that maybe a little bit uh, down the road here. But, you know, so I get out of the Navy. Uh, I've networked around. I end up going into uh, contract food service. So I worked for a company called Service America. I was a service manager at Bloomsburg University in the campus dining services. Okay. And, uh, you know, like, man, I thought I had arrived. Uh, <laughs> so I work at Bloomsburg University for a year and – Learn a lot. Worked for, uh, worked for, you know, worked as part of a great team. Ended up the following year going to York College of Pennsylvania. Again, worked in the dining services. Um, and sort of just grew up in that industry. And I worked for a gentleman named Bob Achenbach. He was my uh, regional vice president. Gave me some opportunities. Uh, we had just landed our... Uh, Largest account was the Catholic University of America. It was 1991. It did, you know, three plus million dollars worth of business, had 250 union employees, and I was 31 years old. And this guy thinks I'm going to run this account, okay? Okay. (laughs) Be in charge of dining services. And that's what I said earlier is like, I was like, okay. I said, well, you know, you know, Bob is like, I have high regards for Bob. So if Bob, Bob thinks I can do this, I must be able to do it. And lo and behold, put together a team of people, and we went over and took over the account, and we were tremendously successful. Um, so much so that you know, after three years, I got promoted, became a district manager, kind of worked my way up in that in that uh, you know uh, managed services sector of the hospitality industry. Um, created a lot of success, and then in 1999, uh, the company that I was working for. Uh, wood dining services was bought by Sodexo and I really didn't want to be part of a large organization. So I left, uh, I left with a couple of other friends and we started the Dunhill group, which was essentially a consulting company to go. Uh, and we went to back, back to work for all of our clients. Because if you think about the world of business, it's, 
you know, I always say there's three value propositions. You're either best price, best product, or best total solution. And the wood company was certainly a best total solution company. And so to be successful, world according to Paul, of course, is, um, you know, if you're a best uh, total solution company, you work with best total solution companies. If you're a best price company, if that's your value proposition, you work with other best price companies. And Sodexo is certainly a best price company. So I kind of looked at it and said, well, you know, all these clients had bought this total best total solution company and now they're owned by a best price company and it's like i don't know buying a bmw and going to bed and waking up the next morning and realizing there's a taurus in the driveway or a hyundai yeah but you still have <laughs> bmw payments uh, I was gonna say that Hyundai though. The Hyundai's are really coming out. Some Hyundai, stuff yeah, that's, listen, that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, sorry uh, for a different. But that's a uh, side note. But, so I went to work for you know for myself, and we went back. And what we did was we worked with our clients and helped them to one understand how the world worked in in managed services, because I would negotiate deals with some of our clients where they hung on to you know something silly in an agreement that I really needed from our perspective. And so I would exact a pound of flesh <laughs> from them. So we helped them understand how contract services make money, how those agencies like Aramark and Sodexo really create these multiple revenue streams that, you know, unless you're aware of it, you just don't know. How does a contract service make money? Oh, oh, everything from, uh, you know, overcharging on benefits to uh, unallocated purchasing dollars, uh, you know, where they're getting rebates off of food. It doesn't sound too ethical. <laughs> uh, it's just the way the world works. I wouldn't, I don't want to pass judgment on it, but it, it was, uh, it was a good opportunity for me to sort of take a step back, work for myself. Again, you know, here I am having to be a scrapper. You know, listen, nobody's sending me a paycheck. So I'm out pounding the streets, you know, uh, networking with my clients. Initially, we did a lot of work for free just in an effort to build up, you know, a portfolio. So I'm doing this. And then in 2004, I get a phone call from a headhunter and he's like, hey, there's this equity group out of Beverly Hills. They just bought this cafeteria company in Louisiana and they want to create a food service division. And I talked to your old CEO and he said that like, you're the guy to do this. Will you do it? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Let's go take a look at it. So I fly down to Baton Rouge and I interview uh, with this company and fly back at the end of the day. And I, I land and I'm at Dulles. I get off the plane and my phone rings and they're like, so you interested? I'm like, well, you know, let me think about it. No, 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 no. We need an answer now. And I'm like, sure, what the hell? Let's do it. So pack up my life, move to Baton Rouge, Pennsylvania, and start to work on creating a food service division. Baton Rouge, Pennsylvania? Or no, Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana. Okay, I was so say. that's how I ended up in, 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 in Louisiana. So I start to create a uh, food service management division within an existing company, which was a Piccadilly Cafeterias. So we what we did was we sold food service management, uh, food management services to colleges, universities, uh, secondary educational schools, business uh, and industry, and healthcare. So we did everything from Meals on Wheels programs in Memphis to uh, a food court for the GSA in in Atlanta to you know down the street you know St. Mary's Dominican High. 
Um, so started putting this together and listen, in the private equi- equity world, it's always about buying something, putting lipstick on a pig and finding somebody to buy it for a dollar more. And so we were kind of at that point. So they decide we're going to put the company up for sale. And I was like, well, shit, you know, back up for a moment. So when I moved to Louisiana, I was single. During that time frame, I got married to a girl from New Orleans. And if anybody's ever been married to a girl from New Orleans, what they realize is they're never leaving the city. <laughs> so now I'm like, okay, well, listen, I, we came back. We fixed this company. They're going to sell it. You know, there aren't a, a lot of restaurant companies, large restaurant companies in Louisiana. So if we sell this, the chances of me sticking around are probably slim and nil. Well, I run into a gentleman, uh, Todd Graves, who's a, a young a young guy who put together this chicken concept called Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers. And Todd was really kind of at a point where he was looking to grow the company. Let's let's take a break real quick right here because there's you, you dropped a bunch of stuff on us. And okay. That, that terror you just went on. And it was all good stuff. But I want to pull back some layers here because uh, you said that, you know, the, the this gentleman came to you and said that you're the man for the job. So let's really start to pull back some of these layers as to what it was about you that made you have this extreme success. What, what things did you do in your life? Now just go like, you know, go down to like 500 feet. We're not like, you know, 20,000 feet. Let's go down yeah. to like 500 okay. feet. <laughs> give us some like specific things that we can take from your story that you did to, to get ahead to, to be the man for the job. Yeah. You know what I did is I delivered. Um, it's probably the, the, the best way to summarize that. So the gentleman who made the recommendation was a guy named Bill Edmondson, and he was our CEO. He had since retired at that time. Uh, but, you know, here I am, this young kid, you know, and Bill, uh, Bill comes over. He takes over the wood dining services, and it was a small company. We were a few hundred million dollars in sales, and our campus dining division was not flourishing, to put it nicely. And so I ended up, he, uh, he ended up asking me to take over a district. So I ran a district from the Mason-Dixon line to Miami. And it was the worst district in campus dining. Um, but I fixed it, you know. And I fixed it because I rolled up my sleeves and went to work. And I found the Get, right people to okay. make it happen. So take us through that. What does, how do you find the right people? What's that process of getting out there and finding right people look like you know so uh when i first took over the job the first thing i did was uh i got my car and i drove and i went to every single account and i talked to everybody from the dish room to the unit manager and i talked to our all of our clients and i sat down with our clients and it was like you know listen you know what are we doing what aren't we doing what could we do better and more importantly what are your goals? Where are you going? And how can we help you get there? Okay, so you're collecting data. You're you're listening. You're first seeking to understand, then seeking to be understood, and you're starting with the end in mind. Going, well, what's the direction? Where do you want yeah. to be? So I have a place, a vision, a place to go. Right, and, and and developing relationships. I mean, listen, this business is all about people at every level. We just call them. They're either crew or customers or vendors or business partners or franchisees, but we're all people, yeah. and it's about relationships. And what I did is I went around and delivered, you know, created these relationships. But at the same time, I sat down and I assessed individuals. And it's you know I, I hate this thing. You know, people say you know hire for attitude and train for aptitude, and you know it's kind of a corny way to say it. But I always feel like if I had the right people. 
I can teach you anything. Yeah, and we can do anything. I'm so happy you're going here because the first thing you said is you went out there and you try to find the right people, and you're right. only as good as your people. And you sounds like you have a gut instinct for that. Yeah, I I I think I'm a pretty good judge of character, uh, or at least I have been so far in life. Uh, but yeah, I mean that was you know that was my thing. So I went around and I said, listen, you know, I sat down and I was like, all right, well, you know, here's my A players, here's my B players, here's my C players, and now I'm going to go out and I'm going to go find you know, B players to replace my C players and A players to replace my B players. And I'm going to put together a team. And not only that, but we're going to find people that excel in certain areas. So, you know, I might have an incredible chef at one school and a great catering person at another school. And what I'm going to do is encourage them to work together. So when they have an opportunity you know, it's not like I didn't want to, I didn't want these teams to be respond to think about the world in a silo, because if the team at St. Mary's won, but everybody else in the district failed, we were still a failure. You know, so everybody had to win, so and everybody had to work together in these cross-functional teams outside of you know, sort of their traditional and what, you know, they thought was traditionally their environment to support everybody. So we're at 500 feet. Now we're going to a hundred feet. How did you get these people? What, how did you coach them to work together? What values did you give them? How, how did you convince them that it was worth everybody's time to work together? You know, you, you spend a lot of time with folks. Um, you know, I think about this one, uh, this one lady, her name was Jackie and she worked in, uh, the, with a food court at one of the student unions and I remember one time and I said, listen, you know, come out here, you know, come out in front of the line. You know, now let's look back. You know, I put my arm around Jackie. I'm like, what do you see? You know, like, just tell me, you know, like, let's talk about, you know, what's this look like? And do you think we can do it better? You know, how do you feel about it? Mm-hmm. And so it was always trying to, you know, I always say that, you know, I, I, I feel like I have a unique ability to sort of paint a vision about where we want to go. And to somehow get people to buy in and come along for the ride. Uh, so, but in that moment, what you did right there, you let her, you, you didn't dictate. No. You, know, you, you let her say what's possible. And what's the power of that? Letting these people identify and contribute. Well, because, you know, they, they, they're going to feel part about it. Listen, I've worked for some schmucks out there. And the schmucks that I've worked for are the people who it's always been about them. Um, this is never about me. You know, I am, listen, I wear flip-flops and shorts to work. Uh, What's wrong with that? (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, You know, I am probably the most, uh, you know, reluctant uh, CEO in the industry. Um, And I just, you know, it's not about me. It's about everybody else. Mm. Um, You know, whether you're, you know, young ladies out in my marketing department or what have you. Uh, you know, it really is about everybody else. It's not about me. And what I found is, is that when you make it about everybody else, they come along for the ride. And when they have a stake in success, they will do whatever it takes to make it happen. How do you get them to get the po- to the point where they have a stake in success? Uh, you know, uh, what's listen, that look like? We'll talk about. Uh, you know, I'll use uh, Victoria. She's our director of marketing. She's been with me for uh, maybe about sixty days now. Uh, Victoria's an operator. She wasn't a marketing person, and but there was something about her. You know, when I 
you know, much like when I took over this job, what I did, the first thing I did is I sat down and spent an hour with everybody in the company. What do you do? What do you want to do? How long have you been with us? What's your story? Where do you want to go? You know, that was my hour long conversation. And Victoria was like, you know, someday I want to be a COO. I'm like, great. Someday you could be a COO. But right so, now, oh man, <laughs> right I now wanna... I want you to be the, 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 uh, the director of marketing. And, uh, she, uh, she kind of goes off and she comes back and she's crying and she's like, I don't want to be in marketing. And I'm like, you're going to be so good at it. She's like, well, I'm going to fail. And I looked at her and says, Victoria, what makes you think I'm going to let you fail? <laughs> because if you fail, I fail. Yeah. You can do this. Trust me. What did you see in her that made you know she'd be good in marketing? Um, very detail oriented. Okay. Okay. She God, has. I wish uh, I had me some of that. I know. <laughs> so, so I mean, listen. She uh, she graduated from uh, SCAD, Savannah College of Art and Design. So she has that creativity. But you know, like she rivals me for being anal retentive. You know, it's just very sort of regimented, which I think are two attributes that are hard to find in the same individual. But I think it makes for a great marketing person because marketing isn't necessarily all about pretty things and neat ideas. You know, there's a lot of analytics involved in sort of understanding. I mean, listen, you got to start slapping levers and see which ones work, but the only way you know which ones work is if you do the math on the back end to understand, did you move the needle? So I knew I needed somebody that had the had the creativity, but also had the the analytical part that uh, could understand truly whether or not they were being successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, I have like you know the the best marketing team um, I could have ever asked for here, and uh, she heads it up and does a good job. So I think you know I mean that's kind of man I'm I'm notorious for doing stuff like that. So just to, to, to zoom back up to twenty thousand feet uh, from you know, to gather what I'm learning from you, you make it about obviously the people first, you recognize that you needed the people. And then you also recognize that it's not about what I want. It's what they want and helping them get what they want, yeah. like listening to what they want and how can I help them get there? She might want to be the CEO someday. At least you know that, but you, you, you take the time to, to gather the data, to find out what other people want. And then you make it about them. Yeah. Yeah. No, listen, but you need to know what they want first. Right. And you know what, you know, 10 years from now, Five years from now, hopefully she's the COO somewhere, and she's going to be a badass. You know, she really is because she's going to have an, an appreciation and understanding of both sides of our business. How do you market it? How do you run it? Mm. You know, how do you create the opportunity, and then how do you execute it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm super excited for her. Yeah. Uh, you know, not only for what she's doing today, but what she's going to do ten years from yeah. now. So, uh, this is. Awesome. We we kind of brought it to current time, and I want to bring it back to the the, the chronological timeline we're on, which was when you were uh, joining the Cane Chicken Raising uh, Canes Raising Canes uh, group. So take us back to that point. So uh, yeah, no. So uh, Todd was great. You know, uh, gave me an incredible opportunity. Um, gave me a, a a small piece of the company. I think we had probably about thirty nine company restaurants at that time. Thirty nine forty somewhere in that ballpark and uh he wanted to grow it and his vision was to have restaurants all over the world so you just mentioned something i want to go a little bit deeper on uh he gave you a piece of the company yep and i have this theory that we're the industry is moving in a direction that if you really want the best people on your team um it's going to take 
getting equity because of how, because I think to, to really be in this industry, we don't do it for the money. We do it for the, the, the pride and the, the no, like the, to have our name on something. Do you, is that? Well, you know, listen, I always give somebody skin in the game and, and in this industry and, and they'll do something, they'll do the best they can. Skin in the game can look, can, can manifest itself in different ways, whether it's equity or uh, upside. Yeah. yeah. Profit sharing. Uh, so I think that that's important because, you know, honestly, in this industry, we're all underpaid for what we do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause this is not, this is not easy work and whether you work in a dish room or you work in a boardroom, uh, it's tough work. Um, it is, uh, it is non-traditional. Uh, if you do it right, it's not, uh, it's not pretty, it's not comfortable. Um, listen, I still work in the restaurants from time to time. Um, I know what it's like. And, um, in, in my world, it's all about that and those people. So, uh, yeah. So Todd, uh, you know, gave a handful of us, a a little bit of skin in the game and, uh, we're moving along. And the first thing I do is I put together a, a business plan to take raising canes into the non-traditional segment, colleges and universities as a strategy for growing the brand. So really what we, you know, we were a small company and what we were learning is that, you know, when we made these geographic leaps to new markets, it was painful. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd lose a lot of money until we got to a point of like four or five restaurants and we got some, you know, some critical mass where you had brand awareness and then these restaurants were taking off. So the whole premise was as well, listen, you know, if we can cut a deal with Aramark or compass and we can go to a university and put a raising canes on their campus and start to create this brand awareness on their nickel then after four or five years while this is sort of simmered in that marketplace then we can come around back around and fill it out with company restaurants okay that's really smart uh one question i wanted to ask and we're, we're gonna bring it back to this point um, what was it about Raising Cane that appealed to you at this time? What, what was it, what did you see in them? What was the potential you saw in them? Yeah, I, I was actually fascinated by it because other than, you know, you go back to 2000 and this is 2008, Raising Cane started in 1996. So you go back in, in time and there's really only two companies out there that have this uber focused menu in and out and us. You know, so, so in and out one thing really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, Kane's still does five things. Yeah, chicken fingers, coleslaw, French fries, toast, and cane sauce. What's the value in that? Doing a few um, things really. You well. can do it better than anybody mm. else, and you can build an entire organization on doing one thing. You can also chicken train fingers. people way easier when you only have oh. a few things you have to worry about. Listen, everything from how you design a building to how you put it on a site to the systems you build, to the people you hire. It was all about chicken fingers. Mm-hmm. And so what you have to do is, is find this one thing. And, and this goes back to this va- that uh, discipline of a market leader. So find that one thing. In Kane's situation, it was uh, chicken fingers, that you're going to do better than anybody else. And everything you do in business is about that chicken finger. Yes. And, and executing it. Um, and that was their success. And I mean, 
listen, you know, the, you know, early on, and you know, don't really want to talk about a lot of the economics of those restaurants, but they, you know, there would be, you know, rumors on the street about what they did sales wise and uh, profitability, and you know, I was like, oh man, there's no way they're doing that with just chicken fingers. And lo and behold, they were. We were. Um, so they were very, very successful. And so it was really trying to find a way, how do you grow a brand? Yeah. And how do you do it intelligently? Yeah. And just one thought, uh, and Seth Godin uh, said this in his book, The Dip, I believe it was. Uh, the difference between being number one and number two is something foolish. Like, uh, like I can't remember the numbers, but it's like almost like double. Like yeah. the, the amount of like profit, like the like they're... I don't know, like if, if, if I, the vanilla ice cream is number one, it's in, it sells a million cases a day and chocolate's number two, then chocolate sells 500,000. Yeah. It's yeah. like, so like the difference between number, number one and number two is like so it's astounding <laughs> that you it, don't get into something if you can't be the best because you won't make it at number one or number yeah. two well, or three who wants or to number be, two or number three. Who, who, I mean, listen, I mean, I'm sorry, you know. What parent tells their kid it's okay to come in second place? You know, <laughs> just in life, you but know. The, the, yeah, but if you, if you if you focus on just doing one thing really well and you don't try to be everything to everybody, it's much easier. It's much easier to be the best. So bringing it back to where you were, where you kind of have this business plan of okay, we have chicken fingers. First of all, I think it's genius because anybody who's gone to college knows that. College kids love chicken fingers. <laughs> yes, they do. So you knew your target market. You're yep. like, where can we go? Like, where will this take off? College kids, uh, college campuses on their dime. That is just so smart. Yeah. So now you're making, uh, you have your presence in this community, and now you start going in and buying up locations of brick and mortar spots yeah. around the universities that you so, went into. Yeah, and what you know, you got to, but you know, it's deeper than that, Eric. And now, you know, one of the things that we spent a lot, I spent a lot of time doing was understanding who we were as a brand and who were our most likely customers. So like you couldn't just go to any university. So I had created a profile and said, listen, you know, it's gotta be a, uh, a, a large, uh, private university or a uber large public institution with a shit ton of money with a minimum of 10,000, you know, 10,000 beds on campus, there's got to be like 90% occupancy and their, uh, their Pell Grant ratio needed to be very low. And here's why. Raising canes isn't necessarily inexpensive. So you got to have money to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So from a customer's perspective, the students, the kids have got to have the disposable income to pay for it. From a university's partner perspective, we weren't necessarily a cheap brand to go into business with. I mean, our average build-out in a college campus was about three-quarters of a million dollars. So they had to have an appreciation for something unique and high quality because we built high-quality restaurants. Mm-hmm. They're not cheap. We don't just – this is not Taco Bell. This is, and listen, it's, it's, it's not a dig at, at, at Yum or anybody. It's just a different value proposition. Yeah. So we well, were – Like you not, said earlier, you get, you're either going to be the best product the, or the, the best price, price or overall, and yeah. you weren't the price. You, right. You were the product. Yeah. And so you know, it wasn't cheap. And so you, know, you had to go out and you had to find a partner that had an appreciation for it that was willing to make the investment in it, that had a significant student population that had a large amount of disposable income so they could afford it. So that meant we went to places like 
Boston University, Clemson, University of Alabama, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. So we had this incredible portfolio of these just first-rate educational institutions where we started setting this up. So now we're like, okay, let's write a five-year business plan. And at that time, my world included just the non-traditional segment. So we all get together. We're writing a five-year business plan, and um, we had done some franchising. We had a handful of franchisees uh, that, you know, I jokingly said, you know, I think Todd, because Todd's a, listen, Todd's a control freak, you know, and if he was in this room, I'd, 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 I'd still say the same thing. <laughs> that's why we are, uh, that's why that brand is as successful as it is. Um, and I think Todd initially regretted selling franchises because why? he lost control, you know, of everything because, you know, I mean, one of the, when I first started, they had a, uh, God, I think it was like the first week they had had a franchise meeting. And at that time, franchising fell under operations. I worked in development. Um, so they have their annual franchise meeting and the franchisees are, you know, they're out of control. They're like, listen, you got to add cookies. You got to add milkshakes. You got to have a salad. You got to have this. You got to have that. And all Todd wants to do is five things better than anybody else. And it's driving him crazy. The last thing you tell Todd or you tell me just based on our wiring is that you have to do something different. It just doesn't work well for him and it usually doesn't work well for me. So we write this business plan and we set this unbelievable number for growth over the next five years and it's also reflected in the franchising. And I was like, geez, you know, so we're, I'm in this meeting and I was like, you know, I said, I think this is a great plan. I said, but, you know, all I ever hear is, is that the, the franchisees are lousy operators. They got dirty restaurants. They got bad food. They got lousy crew. Has anybody told them they need to triple in size over the next five years? And it was just like, you're in charge of franchising. So that's how I ended up in charge of franchising. <laughs> so wait, why would they have? So dive into the this thought process of the, you know, this is where they are. Do they have any idea of where we need to be? And why did you need to be triple in size? Right. Yeah. Well, it was it was a goal for us as a company. And we always, you know, we wanted to get to, to 500 million in sales. And we wanted to have this 2575 split between company restaurants and, and uh, franchise. And you could, you know, there's a number of reasons why you did that. You know, we kind of looked at it from a risk mitigation standpoint, you know, all of our eggs weren't in one basket necessarily. Uh, and we weren't, we were using other people, OPM, other people's money to grow. Mm-hmm. So I could send our franchisee and, in Lexington, Kentucky off to grow that market, our franchisee in, in Ohio to grow that market, our franchisee in Vegas to grow that market. So, you know, while they're working on those areas, we're filling out the space in between. Eventually, we'll have restaurants all over the world. So, um, ended up in charge of franchising. So, the first thing I did is I get on a plane, I go around, and I fly around, and I sit down with every franchisee. And the first thing is I, I apologize. I said, listen, you know, we probably haven't been the best business partner. Why? Um, because it was all, you know, we would go into those restaurants and we'd be like, you know, your baseboards are dirty, your toast is awful, your employees look like shit, and then we'd leave. So you weren't really necessarily <laughs> empowering them. You weren't giving them the tools and knowledge they needed to, to bring it to where you Well, we weren't, help, we weren't rolling up our sleeves and helping them be successful. And we also never took the time to understand t- for them, what success looked like. So mm. I went around and first thing I said, listen, we probably haven't been the best franchisor. 
you know, what's your end game? What do you want to do? Like, what is what does success look like for you? Again, you do you <laughs> keep on going back to like, where do you want to be? You make right. it about these other people. I love it. Uh, and you, you you touched on something, and I always re- quote my boy Rudy Mick. Uh, he's a great consultant out of uh, Boulder, Colorado, and he was on the show, and he said, "Really, if there's one thing I can leave you with, it's paint a picture of perfection." People need something Bingo. to aim for. They need yep. a they need a vision of what the job done look done right looks like. Yeah, and if they don't have, it's like it's like bowling. And putting a, a, a curtain over the, the pins. You don't yeah. know what to aim for. Yeah. So you got to paint that picture of perfection. Yeah. Uh, and that's what you do for your employees. And that's what you need to do for your franchise or, or your franchisees. Yeah. So we sat down, you know, I basically sat down and said, listen, you know, and some of them were, you know, uh, still a little jaded. And I was like, listen, well, you know what? I'm going to, you know, we're going to earn your respect and we're going to, we're going to sort this out. And, you know, my goal is to, you know, my commitment is, is to help you achieve your goals. And um, it was hugely successful. And about two years later, we went from being, you know, at that time, the franchisees, if you looked at the entire system and you looked at our KPIs, you know, whether it was customer satisfaction, food costs, labor costs, sales, growth, all of that stuff. What's a KPI? I'll be honest. A key performance indicator. So just sort of. I'm here to learn. I'm I'm, I'm willing to look silly in front of my listeners. No, no, no. So it's, you know, you've got to, I mean, you have to measure your business and and and, and in our business, there are certain things that you want to measure um, that will help you sort of understand, are you going in the right way? Yeah. And uh, so the franchisees, they were, they, they, it was so awful that they drugged down the entire system. So 25% of the business was dragging down the other 75. And three years later, the 25% of the business was floating the other 75 i mean we went from the bottom of the heap again you know bottom of the heap to the top of the heap and it was really about investing in people and spending that time Mm -hmm. there were years where i flew over two hundred fifty thousand miles a year (laughs) investing in people spending time and also understanding your people knowing what they want and helping them get what they want yeah and so when you went in it's like listen you know here's why this is important Mm -hmm. you know you can't if you don't explain the why behind what it is you want somebody to do, you're probably not going to do a very good job at it. Or they're probably not going to do as well of a job as if you had taken the moment and helped them understand why it is you want to do this. Why is that so important? Um, You know, I I think it's the way people work. You know, people want to be... Again, I don't think anybody in this world wakes up and looks in the mirror and says, God, you know, I want to be part of a failure today or I don't want I want to suck at what I do. You know, we all want to we all want to we all want to feel good yeah. about what it is we do and who we are and where we're going and what we're doing. And it's inherently a part of us to understand. Too. Yeah. Like we we're curious. We want to know why. Yeah. And if we understand that you know, I, I want you to do all this stuff just because I said so, well, you know, yeah. screw off. Like, right, exactly. Now, if I know that, that's, like, that's why I'm not in the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> like, now, if I know why you want me to do this, then th- there's a reason. You yeah. know, I understand that that has a, an impact on the bottom line or whatever the reason is, right. but we want to understand why. And you paint, you know, the other, it, and it's it's kind of bigger than that from you give them the big picture and you help them understand how this one thing fits into everything else. You know, I look at it and say, when I go into into a restaurant, there are a few things that I look at. First of all, I always come into my restaurants, and I have forever through the back door. If you have a clean loading dock, 
you're going to have a clean restaurant. Yeah. If your loaning dock looks like shit, trust me, I don't even need to walk in. Your restaurant looks like shit. And so, you know, that's kind of my thing. So, you know, you kind of look at these things and you talk about, listen, if you, if your attention to detail is so great that once a week, somebody wipes down the legs of the chairs where it gets that black scum because the person who mops the floor didn't really rinse out the mop well enough and it starts to build up. If your attention to detail is that great, you're doing a great job at the rest of it. I don't even need to look at it. You can just tell. So for me, there were always those things that I looked at. You know, the other reason I always came in the back door was I'd go to the dish room. And if you want to know what's happening in a restaurant or a campus food service, talk to that guy that's taking out the trash, washing the pots, washing the dishes. He's going to tell you what's going on. Because <laughs> uh, I was that guy. Yeah. You know, and... They know what's going on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because sometimes, listen, you know, you end up, you know, talking to the general manager and, listen, you know, sometimes yeah. you don't necessarily get the real story. Yeah, they got ulterior motives. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so if you really want to know what's going on, talk to the guy that's, you know, doing the unglamorous stuff. Yeah. Uh, Good yeah. point. Awesome stuff. Great nuggets <laughs> in this conversation, man. So eventually you you left uh, – Canes and I you, did. you came to Dat Dog where we're sitting today. Right. Uh, what was unique about this opportunity that made you jump ship or why leave? What was going on? Well, you know, so um, I had, so I was responsible for the franchising in the United States. Uh, Todd wanted to have restaurants all over the world. We were, we, we looked at opportunities that presented themselves. We had an opportunity to go to the Middle East. Um, I took a, an enormous amount of time to set up all of our business throughout the Middle East. So, you know, everything from tax law to supply chain. I mean, listen, I was flying around Turkey, you know, looking at chicken, uh, you know, you name it. You know, how do you get product from the U.S. to the Middle East? You know, what what are the, the, the different tax laws within those seven Gulf Coast, uh, uh, Gulf Coast or Gulf countries um, and kind of put that together? And at that point, it was like, you know, like I'm kind of done. You know, we had grown. We were you know, 307 restaurants pushing a half a billion dollars in sales. And honestly, my goal was to cash out and, uh, I'd fully expected to be in the Caribbean right now <laughs> and retire. Yeah. So, you know, in, in May of 2016, I sold my share back to Todd. What a man, that investment. We went from how many restaurants when you got, it there? was like 39, 40. So you grew that thing by times. We did. We did. Um, we, sorry, you, yeah. the group, grew that thing by uh, by 10x. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that invest, I mean, that, that small percentage you had early on, I didn't want to know. I mean, we don't have to talk numbers. Yeah, no. I'm sure you got so my, Yeah, so my goal was, you know, I had always had this number in my mind. And uh, listen, you know, one of the things I've always wanted to do, and, and you're uh, when I was a kid, there was this show. It was called Quincy Adam, MD. And it was a guy named Jack Klugman, and he was a coroner. But he was this crotchy old man that lived on a boat, and he always got the girl, okay? And this is funny because, like, at at six years old, I wanted to be Jack Klugman, okay? <laughs> so my entire life, I've always wanted to live on a boat, to be a crotchy old man and live on a boat. And occasionally my <laughs> wife tells me I've achieved that goal. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, so I was just like, listen, you know what? It's been great. It's been fun. Um, I'm going to cash out. 
and I'm going to retire and I'm going to spend the rest of my life on my boat. And so I start to do that. Well, last year I had an opportunity to uh, do some work with one of the uh, one of the owners of Dat Dog, and we were working on a business transaction. And he's like, "Hey, I'll trade you my ownership in Dat Dog for your company." I was like, eh, "I don't really want to do that." Uh, he says, "Great." He said, "Well, you know, we're not because the, the the owners of Dat Dog aren't restaurateurs. You know, one is a business person, the other one is a retired federal prosecutor." And so they're, you know, they were, they were trying to grow the business, but they were struggling. Uh, they weren't making any money, um, and they had lots of issues. And so he's like, will you just take a look at it? So I'm like, sure, you know, I can do that. So I spent about 45 days, of which I spent about 30 of them kind of just secret shopping. So I'd go in downstairs and, you know, sit at the bar for an hour or two and eat a hot dog and drink a couple of beers and chat with the bartender. Because if you really want to know what's going on in a restaurant, talk to the people that work there. (laughs) Um, And so I kind of came back and I said, well, listen, you know, here's kind of where you're at. I said, first of all, you know, it's an incredible brand. And the two hardest things in this business you guys have managed to figure out. You got great food and great people. Mm. I said, the rest of this that I'm going to talk about, we can fix that. It's the easy stuff, you know? Was it the systems, processes, procedures? What was it exactly? Oh, <laughs> Eric, it was just about everything else from, um, you know, yeah, for whether it was finance, accounting, the lack of systems, uh, the inability to leverage the volume. I mean, last year we bought 87 tons of French fries at street pricing. <laughs> okay. It's like, did you guys ever think of reaching out to Simplot and, I don't know, signing a commitment letter <laughs> and negotiating something other than this? You know, so... So they kind of just, they had what they needed and they kind of never looked back once they right. got the... And they just didn't realize that yeah. people did that. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, they were buying soda from a third, Coke from a third party. I'm like, you're buying 2,800 bag in a boxes a year. Why don't you buy that shit from Coke direct? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. so it was doing things that, you know, at, at, at 57, you know, my experience is, is, well, everybody does this. Well, they hadn't done it because... One, they weren't restaurant guys, but they were just mom and pops. And they probably, when they opened that first restaurant on February 14th of 2011, I'm sure they thought they were only going to have one restaurant. Yeah. You know, I didn't think they, I don't think they were thinking they were ever going to have four or to start selling franchising or any of this stuff. And so I give them a presentation. I did some, uh, just some financial analysis. So I sort of looked at their financials and said, kind of, here's where you're at, and here's a competitive set I came up with, and, you know, here's where they're at, and, you know, you look good here, and you could probably do something here, and et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the meeting, Constantine, uh, who's the uh, majority owner, is like, well, you want to be the CEO? And I'm like, you know, no, not really. I'm really not looking for anything. And <laughs> How'd he get you? <laughs> and, and, and so then, you know, in the back of my mind, you know, this is like, just don't ever give up an opportunity. And so I'm like, well, you know, well, let's talk so about you it sometime. Saw the potential in this. I mean, you see the brand. Uh, it is an incredible brand. It's kind of back to what you were talking about earlier. Do one thing really well. Right. Best hot dogs in town. Yeah. Uh, and what else was it that you saw? Uh, the, the brand, the, the people. The brand and the people. The food, mm-hmm. the brand and the people. And so, you know, I said to Constance, I said, well, let's talk about it. Constance says, well, great. Let's have coffee tomorrow morning. And this was on a Wednesday. 
and I started the following Monday as the CEO. And uh, first thing I did is I went and I talked to everybody that worked in the company Again, to try it. and understand like where they were at, where they were going, where did they want to go, what was important to them, and what did they think. One of the other questions I asked is, what is the one thing as the CEO I should know about that dog? And I got a wealth of information. At the same time, I gave them every opportunity to ask me every question under the sun. And uh, it was really good because what it allowed me to do was go around and start to understand who were the high perform high potential people. You know, I had this kid, uh, Ryan Reese, who was uh, just a crew member at our restaurant on Fred Street. And, you know, like I said, we didn't have any systems no processes, no templates on how you set up the dress station where we dress the dogs. And so I'm like, Ryan, I'm like, how do you know how to set up the dress station without a template? He's like, I don't know. He says, this is how I do it. He says, we have these specialty dogs, so I group the ingredients by specialty dogs. And then I always make sure that the dry ingredients are in front because if you put them in the back, when you go to scoop them over and put them on the dog, the dry ingredients will fall on the wet ingredients. I'm like, Ryan, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> Operation. <laughs> and he's like, because he's, he's just out of college. He says, you know, so I just graduated from Loyola with a degree in finance. He said, but honestly, I fucked off a lot in college, didn't do an internship. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I looked at him. I says, dude, you have home. a future <laughs> in this industry. Ryan is now the general manager nice. at Fred. Nice. Okay. I mean, and he does a phenomenal job, and he has also adopted the uh, – the uh, flip-flop footwear, uh, which I have to talk to him about. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but a great young kid who was given tremendous, who showed tremendous potential and he was given opportunity. And, you know, when you do that to individuals, it's unlimited. Yes, man. We're in almost an hour and 10 <laughs> minutes of recording time. We still got the speed round ahead of okay. us. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I think that's a good spot to end it. Unless there's anything else. I don't want to cut you short. Is there anything else you're hoping to get out before we go to the speed round? No, you know, listen, it, to me, it's, uh, you know, I always tell folks and, and, and uh, you know, one of the things that broke my heart when I was interviewing everybody is some 16-year-old said to me, he says, you know where you work? And I'm like, that dog? He goes, no, you work in the ivory tower. And it broke my heart that we had that, that we had behaved such in the rest, which I now call the restaurant support office. At that time, it was the corporate office or the ivory tower. That that's how we were perceived by the people in the field. And I came back here and immediately changed the nomenclature and said, "Listen, you all are mistaken if you don't think that we all don't work." For those people downstairs, every single thing we do needs to be about them. How do you make it known? Oh, you uh, listen. You you. Hey, you know what? I clean the bathrooms. I've taken out my own trash since day one. I pay for my own food. So when I started here, we used to have this policy where if you worked in the corporate office, aka Ivory Tower, you didn't have to pay for your food. You could eat and drink in any restaurant at any time of day for whatever reason for free. And, but at the same time, we didn't really have the money to invest in the people downstairs. And I was like, and I've always done this kind of like a, 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 a tunerman, tunermanism 
and that I've always paid for my food because I figure those folks downstairs are working their asses off to make us money. The last thing I should do is waste it. And if anything, I should reinvest it in what they do. Yes. So I've always paid for my food. Um, and, uh, you know, I think two of the things that I did here to sort of show that we were, you know, we're kind of all, we all came from the same, we all came from, come from the same piece of cloth in that I take out my own trash. I clean my own bathroom. I pay for my own food. I take time to go out and talk to everybody in the restaurants and develop these relationships and help them understand that just because I'm the guy that's called the CEO doesn't mean I'm any different than any of them. And at the end of the day, they all have the same potential to be exactly where I am in life. Yeah. Paul, this has been a great conversation, man. I'm loving every second of it. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. I've got a serious question for all the owners and operators looking to increase revenue and get more new paying customers in the door. Here it is. How many times would you trade a $100 bill to receive $500 back? As many times as you could, right? That's a no-brainer. Well, here's the deal. Nick Fosberg, who's written one of the best marketing books for bars and restaurants, who's also been a guest on this podcast a number of times now, reached out to me and wants to run an experiment with my listeners. Nick is looking for a small handful of owners who have a Facebook page, and he wants to set up a promotion for them. But get this. He wants to guarantee them $500 in sales for every $100 they invest in what he is calling his VOP promotion. If he fails to do this, you don't pay a penny. That's the experiment. And just recently, he ran the same experiment to help the owner of Carl and Chell's Grill House get a 282 offers redeemed in just two weeks with net sales of $14,552. If you're interested in getting more information, go to ru500.net. That's RU for Restaurant Unstoppable 500.net or click the link in the show notes for more information. Finally, a simple, affordable, and legal way to share the music that best represents your brand. It's called Soundtrack Your Brand. Get access to soundtracks tailored for any business. Side note, studies have shown that playing the right music can impact your sales. Do you have questions about what that right music is? Soundtrack Your Brand can help you there too. Here's a fun fact. I'm sure a lot of you out there listening to this already have a Spotify account. Well, you can take playlists from your account and import them directly into SoundtrackYourBrand.com. And my guests are always saying on the show that their restaurants are an extension of their own personal brand. Well, so isn't your music. And now you can marry these things together legally. Unlike Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack Your Brand is licensed for business use. Skip the hassle of ASCAP and BMI because with Soundtrack Your Brand, it's already included. You can even schedule music for the whole week and adapt the music for each day part. Typically, this deal goes for $26.99 per month, but if you act now before the end of August, you can get this deal for $19.99 per location per month for life. Again, that's SoundtrackYourBrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. We're back. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? 
I get up very early every morning and I spend two and a half hours reading about the industry. Nice. Be a student of the industry. I do that every single day religiously. It's blocked out on my calendar for the rest of my life. I love it, man. You got to make the beginning of your day about you. You got to, it's the only way you get ahead because in, in this industry, especially like it, there's so much stuff. You got to make sure you block out time for you first thing. Cause it won't happen later on in the day. Uh, what is your biggest weakness? Oh, um, sometimes I move too fast. Uh, that's my biggest strength and my biggest weakness. Um, I'm a big fan of progress over perfection and uh, you know, we're not always going to get it right and it's not always going to be pretty, but let's keep moving because we can always go back and clean it up. Um, And so, you know, especially in this industry, if you look at the trends, the trends change so quickly. I mean, Jesus, look at straws. I mean, all of a sudden straws are like a bad thing. Um, universally, uh, which next week we are converting to paper straws. But the, the, the industry changes fast. If you want to win in the restaurant industry, you got to be the top dog when it comes to speed. You've got to move at lightning fast speed. And so sometimes it's not, you can't sit there and contemplate whether you're going to do a senior discount on a gift card program for years on just either do it or don't move along, mm-hmm. you know? So speed is important. Speed. Sometimes you, you do occasionally leave a few people behind. Uh, and, uh, I don't necessarily like feel good about that. Yeah. So it's a double edged sword. I got you. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? Um, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are you looking for? Um, imagination okay, and uh, people that don't limit themselves. I dig it. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? Um, wow, my biggest challenge. Um, I have a very young team, uh, a very inexperienced team. Uh, folks that have really never, none of them have really ever worked in a corporate office. They've all come out of these small mom and pop hot dog stands. Yeah. And, you know, it was like, poof, you're the director of marketing. Poof, you're a marketing manager. Poof, you're the business. Uh, you're in charge of business administration and IT. Poof, you're in charge of HR. Uh, poof, you're in charge of systems. You know, and now I got to go back and it's just like, okay, now let me help you understand what that yeah, is and what that means. I just want to like identify what you're doing here, which is so important. We learn about it in the E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Is you have to have t- duties assigned to people. Oh, yeah. You know? And even if it's not the right person right away, uh, you can make changes later, but you have to have somebody accountable for something. Yep. Right? Uh, and that's what it sounds like you did. Like You, you built the... Uh, the not the hierarchy, but you built the corporate. Um, or, I, don't know, I hate using these and I built words, but, but you, you built structure. I built put, I built the structure in the RSO, but you know what it is? I built the structure. For example, the the, the young lady. So much for a speed round, by the way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's not, the not young you, lady me, who's in charge of who's our director of business administration, who's in charge of accounting and IT. She was our uh, she was our bar manager. Okay. But we just got drinks brought into the conversation. What, what did you get me? This is a monkey, uh, a monkey jam sour. So it's uh, monkey shoulder rum, or monkey shoulder scotch with uh, 
lime juice and uh, strawberry mm. jam. I like it. And I always say, if, if you if you're not a Scotch person, this is the perfect drink to enter the category of Scotch. So it's, it's good. It is, yeah, it's good. Beautiful. Thank you again for that. So, anyways, Alexa, who's in charge of our uh, oh, our, biz, <laughs> our our accounting and IT systems? She was a bartender. She was our quote quote beverage manager. But early on, I asked her to do me a uh, to to give me a cost analysis on something. And she came back to me with this incredible spreadsheet. And it was like, you're a very smart young lady. You certainly understand this. You may not realize how good you are at this, but you're really good at this. And so poof, I'm going to make you the director of business administration and IT. <laughs> you're going to be so successful. It sounds like you know, <laughs> like magic tricks. Like, well, poof. you know, and it's but you know, it's like it's like Victoria. I mean, Victoria's like, "Oh, I don't know if I can do." I'm like, "Listen, Victoria, I'm not going to let you fail." Yeah. And the same thing with Alexa. Alexa was like, "Can I can, can I still 10 bar?" I'm like, "One night a week." Absolutely. But you're going to be great at this. And I realize you don't know anything about accounting, but it's not that difficult. Yeah. So, awesome. um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's helping those people settle into their new roles um, and refining that so that they can be, uh, so they can contribute more to the organization. Okay. Uh, what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? It's core value, the way to be. Oh. Do not snipe at one another. You know, listen, I'd much rather you come into my office and tell me I'm an asshole and you don't like me than to be fake and talk about me behind my back. That will make you disappear quickly. Poof, you're gone. Poof, you're gone. (laughs) Exactly. Listen, life's too short. I don't have time for people that aren't genuine and authentic. And if you're going to play those games, go play them somewhere else. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team that's common within your four walls, but not within the industry? Um, I don't know if it, yeah, I want to hope it's it's common in the industry, but maybe not. The answer is yes. Now, what's the question? Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to a customer, we should do whatever it takes to satisfy their needs. And even when they're wrong, they're right. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you approach the business with that philosophy, you're going to be highly successful. Beautiful. Share one book that will make us a better person or restaurant owner or operator. Well, you know, I've been reading this book called Extreme Ownership, and uh, it talks about a philosophy in the uh, in the military. You know, at the end of the day. I own everything, you know, whether it, and I don't know how much time we have, but <laughs> I could tell you about my, my, my first multimillion dollar mistake. Um, and, um, but it's about owning it. You know, it really, whatever happens at that dog, at the end of the day, it's my fault. Okay. It's not anybody else's. It's mine. And even if, Let's just say for whatever reason, you delivered poor customer service to a guest. That's my fault because I didn't give you the tools to be successful. So it's about owning it. It's never anybody else's fault. 
Uh, so it's Extreme Ownership. It's a really good book. And uh, Is yeah. it on audio, do you know? It is. It's on audio, audible.com. So if you head over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable go. and you do not have a membership to Audible yet, you will get this book for free. And anybody who's in the restaurant industry who doesn't listen to audiobooks, because we only have so much time in the day, right? I mean, it's a it's a no brainer. So go get signed up on the first books on me. So share an online resource or tool you use. Uh, you mentioned earlier you spend two hours every morning. So is there like a, a website you go to or an email list you subscribe to, or maybe just an, another tool that you're, you're leveraging that makes you more efficient? You know, I uh, I, I subscribe to. Uh a plethora of industry newsletters uh, that I read through. And uh, so that's always important to me. And I kind of read through those as they, you know, every morning they kind of go out. I think the newsletter fairy works at like 3 a.m. And, uh, you know, so I read a lot of those and start to start to understand, you know, what's going on in the industry. Um, And then surprisingly, I spend a lot of time with our own data, trying to understand, are we doing are the things that we hope to accomplish being accomplished? You know, I talked earlier about slapping these levers and doing the analytics to make sure you're getting the desired outcome. And so you have to sit down and take the time to do that and look at that. So, um, you know, whether it's Nations Restaurant News, QSR, you know, I wouldn't even limit yourself to, you know, if you're in one segment and not in another, I would still capitalize on it. I mean, listen, I get a, we don't serve desserts here today, but I get a newsletter every week about desserts. You know, I still want to know about it. You mentioned the data. Uh, maybe this leads into the next question. What's one uh, technology you're leveraging within the industry? So where are you getting this data? Well, you know, most of it uh, right now, you know, again, we're a small company. Uh, I don't have, you know, millions of dollars to invest in mammoth IT systems. So right now we're pulling a lot of this out of our point of sale. But what we have done, and I mean, you know, we've got four restaurants. We'll do six, seven, seven million dollars in sales this year. But we have a theoretical food cost factored into our point of sale. So we've taken the time to leverage that tool to its fullest extent. So we have recipes in there for everything that we we sell. And so I can tell you what our gap is. And listen, I mean, not a shot at Raising Cane's, but Raising Cane's was a half a billion dollar company. They didn't know what their theoretical food cost was. They so, came up with a formula, but they never truly understood so that. So you're putting into the POS, I saw I walk by, I know you're using toast. Yes. You basically, so what you're saying is you, you, you figure out exactly what the cost of everything is on your menu down to the, 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 the penny. Uh, and every time there's a transaction, you know exactly what your, your costs should be. Cost should be. And then, you know, obviously, you know, every week it's, you know, beginning inventory plus purchases minus inventory. And I know what my cost is. And if there's a, uh, a variance of greater than 300 basis points, we go chase it down. Yeah. So is there a tool built in within, within Toast that walks you through that process of costing out your menu? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, a, is it intuitive? Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, the, it's better than most. Will they help you if you if you need help figuring out that tool, the customer service? Yeah, you know that's a that's a new, uh, relatively new point of sale company, and so I think they themselves are trying to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, so it is a, it is a true partnership, but uh, you know it's it's as good as any other. It comes up a lot on the show. It's a yeah. it's a it's a highly recommended POS. Yeah, platform. yeah. No, it's uh, 
Yeah, and listen, the technology out there. I mean, shh, I mean, I think about when I started in this business. I mean, the technology is incredible. Yeah, uh, you know, we used to run X and Z reports on the Sanyo cash register that you got from you know Office Max or whatever. Uh, <laughs> so, the last question. It's okay. a big one. You ready okay. for it? If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom. Three things you know to be true that you can leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? First one is it's not about you. It's never about you. Um, next one thing, the most important person in this organization is your crew. Um, and you gotta, you gotta be fair. You gotta serve good food, uh, at a fair price. You know, it's, uh, it's never hard to do the right thing and there's never a wrong time to do the right thing in this business. And that applies to how you treat your crew, to how you treat your food, to how you treat your customer, to what you charge for. Listen, we don't have to we don't have to all get rich all at once. You know, you can make money over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was three things. Yeah. Um, Paul Tuneman, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, to share your mentorship, to share your recommendations. This was a great conversation. We wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one operator, somebody you admire, somebody you think would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Oh, you know, uh, Danny Meyer. I had an opportunity uh, a couple <laughs> years ago to uh, at a conference to do an interview with him. We did this fireside chat. Now you're just rubbing it in my face. And uh, <laughs> I can give you a cell phone number. Uh, what? Uh, but he is, uh, listen, he's a great in this industry. He's got a great story. He's built a phenomenal empire but you know what most importantly is he is an individual who sticks to what's important to him so if you look at this tipping policy that he's kind of gone to the mat with yeah you know he's taken a lot of heat over that but he's not bending yeah (laughs) okay because you know what deep down inside he feels like that's right Mm -hmm. and uh i have tremendous admiration for that because that's a rare thing in this world Man, uh, Danny Meyer, you heard it. If you're listening to this, I don't think you follow my <laughs> podcast, but if you do, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And I uh, let the folks at home know if they want to follow what you do, follow the Dat Dog brand, maybe come join your team. What's the best way to connect? Jeez, uh, you know what? Listen, uh, our, our website, datdog.com. And, uh, you know, it's going to seem kind of crazy, but you know what? If you ever have any questions or want to know anything or want to just reach out, uh, it's really simple. It's paul at datdog.com. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time again. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thanks. All right. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Paul Tunerman dropping some gold on us today. A lot of great things to take from this conversation, and I don't think I'll be able to summarize it all right here, but I think the big one to take away is this idea of you know really having an impact on the, the, the people that you work with, the, the people that you're leading and, you know, existing to serve them. And I love this idea of, of it all coming down to your relationships and your people. 
And with Paul, he's a, he's a genius at building teams. You can see it in today's story. But what he does is he listens to his people. He goes in, he talks to his people, he gathers information. He seeks to understand before he seeks, he seeks to be understood. And, uh, this idea that, you know, if, if our people aren't doing the job, right, if things aren't going right, we need to take complete ownership of that. And it's on us if things aren't going right. And we need to paint that picture of perfection. We need to give our people the tools and the knowledge they need to be successful. And when you have somebody on your team and they have that potential and they have the, 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 what it, you know, just what it takes to make it in this industry, you got to let them know. You got to bring it to the surface. You got to put them in the right lane. And Paul does all these things. Great stuff today. What an honor making an example of him. And uh, I just wanted to fill you guys in and let you know what's going on with me, where I'm at. So over the past couple weeks, I've been getting to the West Coast. Uh, you know, in the past, I think a week. It's I was a week ago. I was in Dallas, and then I hit up Albuquerque real quick. Visited my sister in Durango. Uh, then Durango. All the way out here to Seattle. Uh, finally, starting to get my bearings uh, in the Olympia, Seattle area. And if you're out there listening to this and you want to connect with me while I'm in Seattle, please reach out, Eric at Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who I need to get on the show, who best represents the Seattle restaurant scene. And uh, if you just want to hang and talk, that's another option too. I'm, I'm down for that. Uh, but after Seattle, it looks like I'm headed to Oregon and it's trickling down the West Coast. As long as I have money, I'll be on the road and uh, hopefully I can get some good content while I'm out here. Um, all right, uh, like always, guys, don't forget to reach out to me again. That's Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, Eric Cachatori on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and now on Spotify and I believe Google Play. So hit me up, uh, listen, share, do all that good stuff. Uh, and really, the mission of this podcast is to transform the industry. If we're going to do that, we need to get the word out there. We need to get this knowledge out there, these values out there. We need to share this stuff, guys. Um, so, yeah, that's all. Thanks for sticking around this long. I love you all. And until next time, peace out.